keeping you above the fray of the everyday. Uncle Fernando, Bay FM 99.9. Listen to Uncle Fernando and Bay FM 99.9. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Matthew Marks from the School of Psychology and Public Health at the Department of Psychology and Counselling at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Great to speak to you, Matthew. Great to be on, Fernando. Well, so-called conspiracy theories of all sorts and misinformation have and has always been around. Look, it's been around forever. But I guess it's never been galvanised and organised for political ends like it has in more recent times. Tell us about this QAnon movement, which some political scientists believe, combined with conservative political forces, to help propel Donald Trump into office. Remind us what this movement is all about. Yeah, that's... We're living in a really uh, interesting time, and you're right. You know, conspiracy theories have been around for a long time, and and recently in the lead up uh, to the U.S. election, and and maybe five years prior, there was this uh, seemingly new movement, uh, QAnon, uh, this kind of ideology that there were a group of satanic cults involved in pedophilia, who were involved in sort of child trafficking and uh, that there were these special messages coming from Q on these boards, 4chan and then 8chan, having these specific drops telling us this information that uh, was from this high-level person uh, with this Q-level clearance about how usually Donald Trump would be the saviour for the United States and for humanity to help protect society from all these evildoers and so forth. Mm. So... It's, it's quite interesting in the sense that a lot of the narratives from QAnon, sort of pre-existing maybe uh, fringe beliefs or satanic beliefs and kind of conspiracies tied up into this political narrative and potentially what's what was interesting or distinctive in President Trump's term was rather than being one of those presidents that would not talk about conspiracy theories. He was an active uh, proponent and, and voice for that. So really kind of energised a lot of that movement. Mm. So how did this movement go from believing in a cabal of satanic cannibalistic pedophiles operating a, a global child sex trafficking ring to denying the existence of this uh, global health pandemic and that it's all a plot to get us vaccinated and to control us? Yeah. So at the time, a lot of the sort of the political science and political psychology scholars suggest that, you know, maybe it was around between five and seven percent of the US population may have agreed with that kind of thing. And and that seems to have waned. And and now there's less discussion about QAnon uh, and more discussion in and around sort of uh, conspiracy theories associated with, as you said, you know, maybe Bill Gates or Big Pharma is uh, involved in wanting people to get vaccinated to control them or these kind of unfounded ideas. And a lot of them uh, really in and around vaccination and sort of the health space can probably even be tracked back to, you know, the 1830s and 1840s and Mm. the original 
kinds of opposition to vaccination as uh, an infringement on people's personal liberties and, and well-being. So in 1840s in the in the UK, there was the Anti-Vaccination League who were really opposed to mandatory vaccinations. So there is often an, you know, an undercurrent of pre-existing sort of beliefs or, you know, that aren't necessarily, you know, driven by, you know, mm. believing in satanic cults and these other things, but might sort of uh, relate to concerns that individuals may have, you know, real concerns and perceived concerns about, well, these vaccinations may not be safe or they uh, might be uh, imposed on me and so forth. So what we're seeing, uh, I think, in some ways is sort of a response by certain uh, segments of society in responding, you know, and reacting against a perceived threat in some way. Well, obviously, there are particular reasons for groups of people in the US to take up these ideas. And many, no doubt, have justified grievances um, over there. But in terms of the spread and the take up of these ideas, including here in Australia, what's the common denominator that you found? What kind of people are more likely to take up these ideas? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Perhaps, you know, at the outset, there are a large segment of the population will believe in a conspiracy theory. So whether or not you know, some of the research we did recently found about a third of our sample agreed with the conspiracy theory that Farlap was poisoned by US gangsters. But, you know, or might believe some other specific conspiracy theory around vaccines or something, and uh, they're being used to control people and, and so forth. But that's quite distinctive, maybe from uh, people who engage in conspiracy theorizing. And that's you know, interpreting any and all events as part of a conspiracy theory. What we do know is that typically belief in, in conspiracy theories is often associated with people who are also disillusioned with the government and have distrust in authority, distrust in, you know, organisations like um, pharmaceutical companies and so forth. And so the research is really suggesting that in some ways, some people are looking to conspiracy theories as a way to reduce the threat, you know, that they're experiencing, the uncertainty, make mm. sense of the world, maintain positive social ties with others in their groups. And so a lot of people believe in conspiracy theories and um, it's, it's quite common. I think it becomes more of a public health issue when you know, people are less inclined to engage in discourse and, and, and try to look at the information in and around, you know, maybe certain public health safety things like, you know, vaccinations and public mm. health orders. So so it's it's you know, it's across the spectrum really. It's it's hard to say. It's 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 certainly not across gender. There might be an inclination to some extent for people who are a bit younger to believe in more conspiracy theories, but it is really pervasive. Mm. There's certainly a lot of distrust in institutions. One of the things these groups have been doing is pushing alternative treatments such as ivermectin, mm. which is everywhere. Talk about that. Is everywhere. Lots mm. of videos circulating, which they claim is effective and that a big farmer is suppressing it because they can't make as much money out of it as they can with vaccines because they're off patent. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that's, I, I mean, last year we had uh, really, um, you know, uh, President Trump and others talking about, you know, hydrochloric, 
I can't pronounce it really, hydrochloricloxiquine, <laughs> I think, as, mm. as the uh, potential drug, you know, for people to use now that we have an available vaccine uh, that people have used worldwide and it has very low sort of adverse effects and it is uh, quite reasonably safe as opposed to catching COVID, we have, I guess, a new player on the block, you know, ivermectin. The notion that perhaps pharmaceutical companies suppressed um, is maybe one that there's not a lot of evidence or support for, even with, I think, companies who, who supply and make ivermectin suggesting that, you know, they'd be happy to uh, supply this and provide more of it. But a lot of the research now looking at the using ivermectin to treat or to prevent COVID, um, there's no support to suggest that it does that. So in one part, I think part of it can be understood as, uh, at least in the US, you know, if we look to the US, it, people taking an anti-normative position uh, when President Trump and uh, now it seems uh, Republicans to some extent taken a, a position which is against what the norm is or what the general consensus is in society, that may be a way really to signal to their supporters, you know, that they're rallying against the opposition. So it seems to be a way for, for some people to differentiate themselves or, or to feel like, you know, they're not following others. Uh, and we do know that belief in conspiracy theories for some people is associated with a need to feel unique and a need to feel special and have special knowledge. And so there might be, you know, some kind of link there, which, you know, makes treatment of an alternate drug like ivermectin appealing for people who don't want to be a sheeple and uh, follow, you know, the rest of society who are, you know, uh, most people are kind of being vaccinated. So, you know, individuality and, um, and being unique may play a part in that. There's no doubt that it's a volatile environment right now with the misinformation rife. So it's so hard for anyone to be able to decipher whether something they are seeing or reading is correct or not. This is really the challenge of our times right now, isn't it? How to deal with um, and respond to this uh, misinformation. Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail right on the head. Uh, you know, one of, I guess, the benefits of being connected and, and everyone having access to the internet is having a lot of information on hand readily. And if you're on social media, if you're on Twitter, if you're on uh, Instagram or Facebook, etc., you're seeing lots of different posts. Part of that, I suspect, uh, is accelerating the speed at which information travels, and that includes misinformation too, and even uh, disinformation, which is uh, specific information that's put out there really to, in some ways, tell furfies about, you know, what the reality is. So people, everyday people are having to cope, you know, with lots of information and different sources they're coming from, I guess. It probably would make sense to some extent, like, you know, if you did hear an anecdote from somebody, you might think, okay, well, you know, I trust that person. I, I might take that information on board. Similarly, we might ask very simple questions about where we hear that information from. Is it a trusted source to mm. us? Is it authoritative source? Part of the problem with the narratives in and around conspiracy theories, and we especially saw this in the US, was really a, a, a derision of, you know, the media and and treating the media as the enemy and, and mm. talking about, quote-unquote, the mainstream media as being involved in the conspiracy. So 
the erosion and and the distrust of uh, the media, uh, I think, has been you know a, a really sad um, mm. outcome of you know a lot of these beliefs. So, I think most people, when they come across information, they're not mindless sieves and they don't just accept the information. Um, and and most people would question it and think, you know, is this coming from a trustworthy source? Mm. Is what they they're saying stand up? I guess in that sense, misinformation is problematic, but. Most people, I think, if they engage critically with it and they take the time and are motivated to think about it and maybe discuss it with others, then, you know, perhaps they're less susceptible uh, mm. to the effects of it. Have you done much investigation into the, the sources and origins of uh, these ideas and this misinformation? Is it all coming from conservative forces in the United States? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I personally haven't done uh, the research into it, but um, across some of the research, there's some uh, great people in Australia like uh, Ariel Bogle and I think Emma Emma Thomas, I think, is another who are looking really at misinformation and disinformation campaigns. And that's, you know, kind of active campaigns by groups to spread misinformation knowingly. The difference being that, you know, you or I might, unexpectedly or, you know, without intention, pass on something which is not correct, mm, uh, which mm. might be misinformation. But people people who are doing it, uh, you know, seem to be doing it, uh, you know, for a few reasons, uh, one of which, you know, is the kind of the snake oils salesman type one. And there's often mm. a monetary incentive associated with maybe denigrating, you know, some existing treatment and saying, oh, hey, by the way, uh, I can offer you a cure for, you know, COVID or this treatment or, you know, if you do these things or take, you know, in the US we saw, I think it was like silver solution being sold by preachers on daytime TV. It's often associated with uh, someone trying to make a buck on that end. So it's useful to look at the motives why mm. people are, are sending you uh, this information. The mm. other thing uh, we see clearly too in, the, in these kind of political senses is there's a fair bit of political signaling and, and that is it's you know, as I mentioned before, it's it's an anti-normative position to, you know, kind of spread these ideas, right, and to perhaps make yourself as a politician seem quite distinctive from others, that you are perhaps, you know, a champion of the people and you are kind of championing these kind of popular ideas and mm-hmm. you understand, you know, the everyday person. So when you kind of uh, drill down to it, uh, it, it, they're often not rooted in, you know, evidence or they're not rooted in um, facts and, you know, uh, reasoning, but they seem to be based on these kind of ulterior motives, which often trace back to do with kind of increased status or importance or, Mm. you know, money. So a lot of it politically motivated to capture supporters and voters. But the first point you made there about uh, snake oil merchants Tell us about America's Frontier Doctors, because these are a group of conservative uh, doctors that have been doing it for those ends, but also with political uh, ends, because it is the conservative side of politics that is actually using this tactic, isn't it? So there's a coalescence there. Yeah, there is. And, and, and so I think with those frontline doctors, so yeah, yeah, these, yeah, yeah that, that are really peddling these um, you know, bogus treatments uh, for COVID, you know, things like ivermectin and, you know, first it was hydrochloric, uh, hydro, I can never pronounce it. I don't know how the uh, US president managed to pronounce it, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but certainly, you know. I'm not going to try. 
Yes, you, they're certainly doing it, you know, as a means, uh, you know, for uh, perhaps, you know, status and, and also money. For some of these um, people, you know, they're being driven to offer an alternative, right? And they're the ones with the alternative solution. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I suspect your your listeners and, and people who listen into the show and, and uh, people in the area, you know, have to kind of question, you know, what are the motives behind these people doing it? Now, I can appreciate on the one hand, big pharma and pharmaceutical companies clearly are also motivated by money, but we also have to kind of balance that out against, you know, the sort of the the rigors and the balances and checks, you know, with maybe vaccinations and other treatments and so forth. We have, you know, all these kind of uh, treatments being offered by these doctors and so forth that don't aren't really based in any evidence or it, it, there's no evidentiary treatment or, you know, there's no randomised control trials and mm. there's no no data to back this up. Why are media outlets like Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, and here our own uh, Sky News Australia and Murdoch newspapers giving so much airtime to these ideas? They all appear to be conservative-leaning mm. media outlets. Is it solely to capture an audience for themselves but also to get their their side of politics into power, right? Yeah, it could well be. I mean, it's 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 hard to, I imagine, to kind of distill that down to, you know, a, a few responses. But again, you know, uh, for a media organisation that's driven by audience numbers and popularity and, you know, its bottom line, then we do know that there are studies that at least show, you know, for example, on Twitter, tweets that, uh, kind of oppositional or, you know, say something against an outgroup, right? So a particular uh, target are much more, go much more viral and are much more newsworthy and clickworthy than those maybe kind of benevolent kinds mm. of things. So certainly orchestrating uh, in some ways, you might say a campaign or a media campaign that is very appealing, very salacious, very, uh, again, countering established views might be a way to kind of attract viewership and, and to create you know, attention. That's one way to kind of draw uh, viewers in and get clicks on YouTube and, and those sorts of things mm. which could be monetized for them. And these appear to be the same forces that have been challenging climate change for a long time. And all the socially progressive notions such as equality, justice for all and, and so on that mm. are most well-meaning New Age, progressively minded people would hold dear. So how do you explain how it is that so many New Age people are ending up taking up these ideas to do with the the pandemic and vaccines? Yeah, that's. I think that's a, a really good way to tie that in. And I think sometimes, especially given the people that we know, and we're probably more likely to interact with people who are like us. And, uh, you know, maybe if we're on social media, we're going to follow people who have very similar views. So to some extent, we might be engaging with people who are kind of very similar to us, you know, maybe part of an echo chamber in some way. It's important to remember too for you know, for people who who seem to be, uh, you know, let's take for example, anti-lockdown protesters or, or people who are opposed to public health interventions and and doing something contrary to what most people are doing, there's probably amongst that group a bit of a sort of a false consensus that 
they're much larger than they are. And there can also be something which we call in psychology a pluralistic ignorance, thinking ourselves, our own views are in the minority. A lot of the research and polling data and stuff really suggests that most people are kind of doing the right thing and, and, you know, uh, climate change attitudes and, and those sorts of things. You know, most people understand the, the urgency and are in favour of those. But then you do have these very loud voices, um, you know, maybe media, certain media circles or uh, certain politicians that, uh, you know, are able to reach many people. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're representative of, you know, mm. the majority. But those opposing views really do seem quite confronting. And because they are, it's an interesting question. I probably would think that on the whole, most people are doing the right thing by themselves, by their family, by others. They're trying to look after themselves and their social group because that's important. And, you know, we just are drawn to the attention by these kind of bad faith actors Mm. um, kind of uh, out in public or, you know, using the media and so forth. Mm. So I'd like to think it's it's more of a good story than it is necessarily, (laughs) you know, one of a tragedy. Well, I think it's what we can call a conundrum. And what I find ironic is that so many go on about the mainstream media being the problem and lying to us, and yet they are willing to spread videos produced or pushed by some of these very media outlets when it comes to speeches from people who they would not otherwise befriend, let's face it, in ordinary life such as Craig Kelly and Malcolm Roberts and Mark Latham, Alan Jones and so forth on the far right. Yeah, so we see things like, you know, cancel culture and and those sorts of views. Mm. And, um, you know, we're seeing those views kind of said in big media platforms. So I'm not sure exactly who's being cancelled, but um, (laughs) it certainly isn't the people getting their opinions across. Again, you know, if you think about some of those people that you listed, you have to think about, you know, what is motivating them to take this position? Okay, Matthew, just a, a little question to go out with. How can you help us out of this almighty mess that we're in? What can we do, if anything, about all this misinformation? I wish I had the answer. If I had the answer, maybe I could write. Maybe I could write a great book, or um, or uh, have a TV show, or something, and, and retire early. Um, I think it's a question for our time, and it's not a simple answer. I think certainly during the pandemic, I'm certain most people want to do uh, well by their friends, by their family, by their community. They want to keep them safe. And so what we people, I guess, scientists are trying to do is trying to understand the sorts of things that can help keep people safe. And and I think one of the really promising things that we've seen during the, the pandemic especially is people galvanise and, and a lot of sort of uh, socially minded collective behaviours. You know, there's often, I think, an idea that, you know, people are very individualistic and self-centred and, you know, would just kind of look after themselves. But what we really have seen for the majority during the last, you know, 18 months is our ability to to kind of look after each other and do things for others to keep ourselves safe and others safe, right, who we care about. So I think there is uh, some good in it all. It's easy to get disheartened by everything we read in the news every day and the, and the kind of the bad stories, but it's also... Uh, nice to kind of reflect on those positive, uplifting actions that we Mm. see in our local communities as well. Absolutely. Dr. Matthew Marks from the School of Psychology and Public Health 
at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Great to catch up with you. Thanks for speaking to us here at Bay FM. Thank you, Fernando. Thanks for having me on. 